Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, we realized the sayings, you always hurt the ones you love, and when one door closes, another one opens, were both all too true. But by the end of this week, we're going to usher in a whole new decade and a whole new life, as far away as I can get from my family, yet still be in the same city. Only I'm going to find that privation and treachery know no borough boundaries. I'll once again brave the doors at CBGB's and not only manage to not get chased out, but find what I didn't even know I was looking for. The one thing that's constant in fish out of agua and life is change. And so we set the stage for our next phase with the Beastie Boys from License to Ill in 1986. By the late 1980s, I was, to any casual onlooker, a fully grown woman. Except for one thing. I was still living at home. After my college boyfriend Pasha and I had broken up, 
I had had nowhere else to go except back to the Bronx. I thought I would have sanctuary there, have time to lick my wounds and plan my next move. Now, of course, I knew my parents both loved me, only I knew I would never be seen by them or myself as a full adult as long as I continued to live under their roof. And now, Chapter 40 from Fish Out of Agua. After Dark Nothing good happens after two o'clock in the morning. That's what my mother told me whenever I tried to get my curfew raised. When I was 19 going on 20, I thought I had made the right choice by choosing to go to the School of Visual Arts as opposed to the Art Center in California and live at home. I could get home cooking and do my laundry any time. I could do my homework on the subway and have more time to go dancing. I didn't think my choice would have its price and that the price would be my freedom. But mom, I'm in college now. I'm an adult, I would say. Now, my mother had not been known as the Jackie O of East 103rd Street for nothing. Her regular voice was a soft, well-modulated stage whisper, just like the real Jackie O. And my mother practically by this time had no Spanish accent whatsoever. But when she pissed me off, as she was doing at this moment, she sounded just like Rosy Perez, and I mean that in the kindest most respectful way. Mira, yo tengo una, uno adulto? Como? When you are un adulto, you will live in your own house. Pero, as long as you live under my roof, you will be home by two o'clock in the morning. So, for the next five years, I obeyed her. I came home drunk. I came home tripping. Once or twice, I even came home without my underwear. But by God, was I in that door by two o'clock in the morning. And then finally, I graduated from SVA. I landed a job, and I kind of moved in with my college boyfriend. But now that Pasha and I had broken up, instead of going back to a 2 a.m. curfew, which, believe you me, would have been enforced regardless of how old I was, 26 and change, in case anyone's counting, I decided that it was time for me to be un adulto adulto, however you say it, and get my own apartment. Do you remember what it was like to look for an apartment in the pre-internet late 80s? Yuppies had the New York Times. Neighborhood people had the Post and the New York Daily News. I, however, no longer wanted to be a neighborhood person. My only hope was the village voice, and I knew that to get the best listings, I would have to be at the newsstand in front of the coffee shop across Lafayette Street from the Astor Place Cube at 2 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday when the truck came with the delivery. And then I would have to scramble for a paper along with a couple of other, a couple of other, a couple of other, another couple of dozen apartment and job seekers, find a spot on the curb to scan the listings and then run to the payphone on the corner to leave messages because there were not any cell phones yet. And... God help you if you did not have enough quarters. I did leave a message that night for one of the two apartments I thought I could afford. One called the next day and said I could come see it that Saturday. And I had already hung up before I realized that apartment was in Brooklyn. 
I asked my father if he would come with me, but when I told him it was in Brooklyn, he said, forget it. For some reason, my father just hated Brooklyn. Alone, on my way to the Brooklyn apartment, I looked at a subway map. The neighborhood was right near Prospect Park, wherever that was. Perfect, I thought. I'll be just about as far away from my family as I could get, and still be in the same city. Now, my father had taught Kevin and me how to rent a safe apartment in New York City. He had told us, First, you go in and you check the outlets to see if they spark. You check all of them. And then you go to the bathroom and you see if the toilet flushes, and you flush it again. Then you open up all the water and make sure it don't run brown. And then you go to the kitchen, and you make sure there's no holes under the sink. And finally, if everything else is good, you ask to go to the roof. And if they tell you no, you say, okay. And then when they leave, you sneak up there anyway. And you go to the four corners of the roof, and if you see any projects, you don't take the apartment. This was from a man who had grown up in Spanish Harlem and basically lived in Washington Heights and the South Bronx for most of his life. This apartment in Brooklyn passed the project test. It only passed the project test. So I took it. Oh, excuse me. Did I call it an apartment? <laughs> you ever hear of the film, This Property is Condemned? Well, I was about to live there. The bathroom ceiling dripped. Every outlet sparked like a Tesla coil. And the hole under the kitchen sink was large enough for a German shepherd to crawl through. All of this splendor for just $550 a month. But it did have a backyard that I had access to that could have made a pretty nice garden if it was cleaned up. I was sure it would only take a week. And after two months, a change of employment, and several bouts of boredom, loneliness, and self-pity, I had dug up a half-century of fossilized pets. I kept some of the more interesting bones, a foot-high pile of rusted nails, and about a dollar and ten cents in Indian head nickels. And I was only half done. Every time I cut myself on yet another piece of beer bottle made before my parents were born, I saw this as just one more manifestation of my rotten, miserable, new adult life. And then, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I lost my job. My new job. The job where I hadn't yet worked nearly long enough to qualify for unemployment. I had a little over $2,000 in my savings account, enough for about three months' rent, and then about like $66.66 a month left for everything else, including utilities and feeding myself and the two kittens I had gotten to keep me company. A tiny Russian blue I named Boris, and a brown tabby female who reminded me of Max, who I named Kimchi. One morning I looked out of the window at the finally clean, finally tilled soil. Whenever I looked at that garden before, I had pictured a soothing floral oasis for my tortured soul. Now, I looked at it and saw dinner. I ran from the apartment and went straight to the Grand Army Plaza Library, where I took out every book I could find on organic gardening. No internet yet, remember? In the afternoon, I went to the Caton Avenue stables and pushed home a creaking shopping cart filled with plastic key food bags overflowing with horse manure. 
the kittens would spend the night rubbing themselves crazy over my sneakers. And before the next week was out, I had planted my miniature concrete garden backyard plot into a miniature farm with plum and beefsteak tomatoes, green beans, zucchini, eggplant, and 36 stalks of evenly spaced silver queen white corn. All of this was done under the watchful eyes of my next-door neighbors, a family of indeterminate Eastern European origin consisting of a fat mother who was a chain smoker and wore an eye patch, an even fatter drunken husband, and their skinny teenage son who liked to sunbathe in his rotting yellowed underwear. They all had something to say while I planted garlic, scallions, marigolds, and nasturtium in between each row. Why is you planting flour mit food? My neighbor asked me in her indeterminate Eastern European accent. You are knowing nothing of garden. All plant will be died. You will see. Ugly girl. I thought I knew what I was doing. According to the organic gardening books, planting the herbs and flowers would guard my vegetables against mold, infestation, and rot. But not, unfortunately, against theft. By the middle of August, my garden was like a Henri Rousseau painting, bursting with life and color. My neighbors? A soggy heap of mold and rot. What you do, my plants, ugly girl? My neighbor asked as she shook her fat fist at me. Oh, what can I tell her? That all the bugs and germs that were repelled from my garden were feasting on hers? Besides, I had other things to worry about. I had not been successful finding a new job and was now living off the bottom of a 10-pound bag of rice. But the first veggie to be ripe, a fat purple eggplant, was just a day, maybe two, away. Have you ever been hungry? Really hungry? The kind that wakes you up at night and keeps you on edge all day? I know I was always just a phone call away from my parents, but I was stubborn. I had intentionally moved as far away from them as I could, and I was determined to be un adulto and deal with this on my own. That morning, I went into my garden, and my perfect eggplant was gone. And the next day... The next eggplant was gone, and then the zucchini, and then half my tomatoes, and then the corn. I couldn't understand. And then one morning, there was a message in the dirt. A fat, bare footprint next to the chain-link fence, and on the other side, a stepladder. How could I have been so stupid? I looked into my neighbor's yard, and there she was, smirking at me. Why your plant is livid and mine's is die? Not correct, ugly girl. And she put out her unfiltered cigarette with her fat, bare foot. I had never been so furious in my entire life. I wanted to climb over that fence, break off her fat fingers and her fat foot, and stick them both into the fat hole where her right eye used to be. But I knew that if I even so much as touched her... I would be the one to go to jail. So I slunk back into my apartment and cried and screamed until I collapsed in a heap onto the floor. I knew the truth. I was a total and complete failure as an adult and would now have to call home 
and begged to come back. As I resigned myself to a lifetime of two o'clock in the morning curfews, Boris, the tiny Russian blue kitten who I had caught eating a water bug the night before, went into the litter box and took the worst smelling cat crap I had ever smelled in my entire life and through the miasma, the hunger, and the tears came an idea. I went into my backyard at two o'clock in the morning. It was cool and peaceful under a full moon. I waited until all the lights on the block went dark and then I crept in. I compared the last two eggplants in the garden because only the plumpest, ripest one would do. Lying on my back, I took out my sharp exacto knife and slowly, carefully, sawed a circular plug out of the bottom of the eggplant and then hollowed the inside out, all the time comparing the circumference of the hole to the circumference of the cat turd in the baggie at my side. The sky began to grow light. I was sweating. I saw a light go on in my neighbor's kitchen, and then I slipped the turd up into the eggplant, replaced the plug, and rolled into my apartment and down the stairs and up the stairs just as I heard their screen door, door open. I had gotten back into my apartment just in time. And then I took a nap. Later that day, I was on my way to Kifu to shoplift some cat food for Boris as a reward because, yes, this is what my life had come to, and I saw my neighbors on their front stoop. They wouldn't look at me. On an impulse, I asked, How is the garden? And they banged into their house and locked the door, slammed it, and I thought I was going to break in half laughing, because what I was dying to know was how and when did they find out about the booby, or should I say... <clears throat> poopy trap. <laughs> Did it slide out into her hand as she picked the eggplant off the vine? Or maybe did it liquefy inside as she steamed it for her family whole? I would never know. What I did know was that nothing ever disappeared from my garden that summer or any other summer for the five years I would live there. Funny thing is, now, for some reason, there's this one vegetable I really don't eat all that much anymore. <laughs> so, nothing good ever happens after two o'clock in the morning? Uh, sorry, Mom. This time, you were wrong. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Tempted from Squeezer's 1981 album, East Side Story, and R.E.M.'s The End of the World, as we know it, from 1987, playing underneath the story. And now, it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're making it a storytelling hat trick with today's artist, a fellow storyteller and podcast producer who I first met at a show that also became a podcast called The Soundtrack Series. And, well, why don't we just take a listen? So I'm here with a storyteller and producer, someone who I admire. He has a podcast. He's a great guy, and his name is John Asante. Hey. Hi, John. How's it going? It's What's... going great. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua. Thanks for having me. 
So what are you, what are you, what's going on with you? Uh, you know, I really want to hear about how you went into storytelling, you left, and then you came back like the prodigal son. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, so I had been working at NPR since like 2009. I worked there for about five years, worked on a few different shows. One of which was Ask Me Another with the great Ophira Eisenberg. Yeah. so that Someone was, who I know from back in the day. So that's when I really got back, got into storytelling. I was, uh, right before I moved from D.C. to New York to take the job here in New York on Ask Me Another, I started storytelling in D.C. at a small community workshop, and then I heard about all that was going on in New York, from like The Moth to all these other shows, and I was like, I have to get up there and do my thing, and so I just started getting in touch with people, went to a Moth show, but then I went to all these other smaller shows, and mm. of course, we met along the way, not sure where, not, not sure, sure when, where. I don't know. probably something like sometime in like 2013, Yeah. Um, and I loved getting on stage and being able to kind of express myself in a way, and I tell people that I love stand-up comedy, but I don't have the the skills to, or the ego, or the balls to really get up <laughs> and uh, and make and make people laugh intentionally, or or you know get them to laugh. Well, it's a different skill set. It to is. be a stand-up, you need to be able to master the joke, which is the setup and the punchline. See, storytelling, you can be just as hilarious, but the 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 humor comes from a, a different place. Exactly. So I love that people expect different emotions when you tell a story. Yes. It can be happy, it can be sad, it can be kind of whatever. Um, so if I get a laugh, I'm always happy, but it's never my be-all, end-all. I want someone to learn about my experience and to share that experience. And if, if they can share that experience, great, but if they can learn from that, even better. Mm. You know. Um, so I started doing that, um, and then it was like August 2014 was when I really just switched gears. I was just kind of looking for something to do something different. I kind of wanted to go into marketing a bit. I left NPR completely, left Ask Me Another, went into marketing. I'll do this real quick into mm-hmm. like for a... Uh, car rental company of sorts. I remember when you told me, I was like, you're doing what? <laughs> and yeah. you were like, yeah, it's going to be great. And I was like, okay. I, I know, looking at me in 2014, John, I was like, oh my gosh. Well, how long did that last, though? A year, like, and a, year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah. See, I was, if I would have guessed like nine months, but okay. It, I mean, I guess, part of me wishes it was like nine months. <laughs> wow. Okay, but then what, what made you decide to uh, to come back into the fold, brother? Well, one, I wasn't doing... So- <laughs> I always wanted to say that. Come back. <laughs> Into the food. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't doing storytelling as much outside of work, because partly because I was working so much. Right. And I really just missed telling stories, whether it was something I was getting paid for or something I was doing on the side as something like really fun, like getting on you know open mic storytelling or for like a yeah. period show. And I really just missed having that feeling of going to work and being like, someone's going to enjoy this enjoy my work and I'm not just doing it just to like meet a number or a quota you know right. it's all about the experience for me and that's when I got I, I mean I'd studied journalism in college and had done college radio and done my own you did college course. radio yeah oh yeah. no when he listens to this he's gonna be like mm, Michelle you should have done this mm, Michelle you should have done that <laughs> Oh, no, wow. no, I love doing college radio. What school? Uh, Georgia State University. Which, oh, wow. Which is not known for its journalism program, but has an awesome college Wait, radio. D.C., New York, Georgia. So, and where are you from originally? So, grew up in New Jersey, moved to Georgia when I was 16. Okay. And then moved back up the East Coast after college. Wow. So, just been like up Great, and down. Up and down, up and yeah, down, up and down. down. Okay. Uh, but yeah, college radio at Georgia State was amazing. We were on a 100,000 watt station. So, I guess in perspective, we weren't, we weren't just like this podunk station mm-hmm. in Atlanta broadcasting to the people down the street. I mean, we were broadcasting all over the city of Atlanta in the metro Atlanta area. At night, we had um, we'd have truck drivers call us, call us from like, 
you know, coming through from the Alabama Georgia border, you know. So I mean, like, we wow. had a big reach. Like, that's crazy. I know people who came to our school just to come to our radio station. That's amazing. Yeah. Like you were like the king of radio there, <laughs> the king of all media of, South, of Georgia University. Wow, that's so yeah, cool. It was fun. Yeah. So, so when you were working for that <clears throat> company, um, were you you weren't performing a lot then either because like I think like the job was like really hard and like yeah. it left you like like not able to like do anything but do the job. Yeah, that's pretty much I it. I think the few times I ran into you, that was your main um, com- <laughs> complaint. Yeah, I was working... I- I'm trying to think of a harder word than complaint. But no, I complaint. no, it was a complaint. I was working like 60, 70 hours a week. Fuck. Um, it was I can just... say that. It's his internet radio. Fuck. <laughs> fuck. Yeah, I was like, fuck my life. <laughs> um, I was working five days a week and then either Saturday or Sunday, sometimes Saturday and Sunday. And so oh, no. I was so stressed from work that I'd come no. home and have 20 emails to answer that I would never think about storytelling. And I realized after a while, like one month, two months, four months, six months were passing by, I hadn't told a story. And I'm like, I have to get back into this because I miss it. And right. I kind of started to, like at this tipping point when I got so stressed out at work and finally figured out a way to kind of channel my energy and not worry about every single last thing and just have a stopping point at the end of the day mm. and say like, I can only do so much. I will drive myself into the ground trying to answer everything. I know. And so, At 30, please. Gosh, and I was like... Were you like, even 30 I was, I was like 26. Oh, yeah. my God. And I was like, this is terrible. Um, and so... Um, Wait, you're not even 30 yet? I'm turning 30 in June. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> oh, my God. So I was basically like, I am way too young to be stressed out at a job. And I, yes. This much. I mean, it affected my health. Um, went to the hospital a few times. What? It was yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So I know now that... Um, I, there's no reason to ever get that stressed out, and to, I need to find an outlet to mm-hmm. let out my stress. And that one of those things, strangely enough, was open mic storytelling. Oh, it's like, great. When I tell people, you know, I do this, they're like, why aren't you, aren't you nervous? Aren't you scared? I'm like, well, no, a part of my, one of my degrees in undergrad was studying, like, part of, like, sorry, let me say it again. One of my degrees really, um, like, it, it uh, pressured me. I guess it required me to do a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Like, I had public speaking classes. I do a lot of speeches. So I got over that fear fairly early on um so then so then i just love getting on stage and talking to people and just making it seem like a conversation mm-hmm. and performing it was fun it was really fun and so that was like my outlet for getting out the stress that's great now how did yeah. you end up with the gig you have now how did that how did oh, that like man. wonderful thing happen so it was all a matter of keeping my connections tight so oh. the, so like the july so it was july 20 i guess we're in 2017 it was like july 2015 because I got, I think I left January 2016. It was July 2015. My friends were, um, and I were hanging out, and they said, "You look really stressed. Are you like in your job?" I go, "No, I really want to get back into radio. I know podcasting is even bigger than ever." Um, they said, "Well, this is a great time." And these are a couple friends who worked with me at NPR. Did one, you know a woman named Rama Wood? Yeah, yeah. She is one of the the um, core people at Radio Free Brooklyn Station. Oh, good. Shout out, out Rama. Rama, what's up? Oh, hey. my God. We're totally going to promote it by saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is so cool. I love it when, when, when lives connect like this. Yeah, it's I, awesome. I think I hope she remembers me. I'm sure she remembers me. I'm friends with her friend, uh, Eleanor Kagan. Okay. We worked together and asked me another. Anywho, okay. I'm anyway. sure. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So they, my friends were talking to me. I remember we were in um, Washington Square Park. No, no, no. Sorry. Scratch that. We were in, um, what was that? What's that park all the way up on, like, the west side, like, in the 120s? Oh, um, Riverside. We were in Riverside Park for uh-huh. a cookout. And that's when they were asking me, do you like your job? And I said, no. And they said, okay, well, here's some ways to get back in. So I started applying in different places. I applied to WNYC, didn't get a job there. Applied at the Moth, didn't get a job there. Applied a bunch of other places. Finally, like one day in December, 
friend brought me into NPR, said, bring your, or sorry, into WNYC, said, bring your resume and let's just talk to people and see if we can get you in. And luckily that worked and I got a few people on my, I got a few people's radars and they said, all right, you're looking to get back in. Are you, you know, looking for a job currently? I'm like, yes, but I still have a job. So I'm not about to drop my job for like a temp thing that could last for a couple of days. Well, lo and behold, second week of January, I go into work. I'm still job, job hunting. And um, our, our CFO comes into work and my supervisor pulls us, each of us one by one into um, this office. Now I was one of the last ones to get into the office that day. So I was the second to last to get laid off that oh, day. Oh snap. Yeah, it might've actually been the last, but neither here nor there. I got laid off. Luckily I got a severance package, but that opened the door where these people who were asking, can you work a little bit? And I'm saying no, were automatically like, oh, uh, I was on that side where I'm like, yes, what can I do right away? And so, Luckily, um, WNYC was working on a new podcast about gentrification in Brooklyn. Yeah, called There, there Goes, goes the, neighborhood. the Neighborhood. Coincidentally, Coincidentally, yeah. yeah. So that was a happy accident. Yes. Yeah, so this is like the coolest thing. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but I have I have a solo show about the gentrification of my neighborhood, Park Slope, Brooklyn, which I started doing um, at the end of 2014. I actually debuted it at the 2014 Solocon Festival, and it's called There Goes the Neighborhood. So then when I meet John again, I just run into him like randomly. I'm like, well, what are you up to? You still working at that mm -mm place. He's like, no, I got this great job at WNYC and we're doing this podcast and you should come to the opening. And I'm like, what's the podcast cost called? And he goes, there goes the neighborhood. And I'm like, what? And that, <laughs> that opening party was like the coolest, coolest thing. It was so awesome. We had like open... We had like open mic storytellers, we had poets, we had slam poets, we yeah. had musicians. We got to play a little bit of the podcast and it was an awesome experience. I worked on it from January until March of last year and I got to do all sorts of different things from um, producing a couple of the episodes to doing some of like the web copy to just helping out in any way I could. That's so exciting. It and you got, really and you got to work with the great Jim O'Grady. I got to work with Jim O'Grady. Moth awesome. person. I'm telling you, man. It's all yeah. the, we, we're like this like web. It's like it's like the moth web or the spider web. So yeah. I don't know what you call it. No, moth web. <laughs> the moth web. The mothlings. <laughs> the mothlings. Totally. He was so fun to work with. And that whole team was amazing. So no second season, though. So no second season. I think there had been talk of doing it. But the formula, the way in which we did this mini documentary podcast sort of format where it's like eight or nine episodes um, kind of tackling one issue but in different from different angles mm. like really in depth like 30 minute episodes each has been actually like um, repeated fabricated not fabricated I guess it's been like repeated and like turned into this model for new, for oh. new podcasts for gee I guess, you, I guess you gotta come up with a new one then so, oh yeah. my god this is what happens when you're innovative right yeah yeah so, yeah speaking of podcasts yeah. tell me about yours so yeah so I've had this idea for a few years. It's called Play It Back. Mm -hmm. And basically I interview creative types, artists, storytellers, musicians about their favorite song or even a song that they hate. But what does that song mean to them? Mm. Like what sort of human emotional connections have they had with that song? Um, for instance, I think our first episode we had my friend um, Katie tell me about how Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It means so much to her and her mother because it was a song that they connected over when her mother was um, fighting um, cancer. I'm not going to say which kind because I don't want to mess it up. But I rem I, it this, 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 you don't need to quantify it. Just, that, yeah. just, just have that's bad. That's enough. Yeah. That you, we don't need to know if it's in her where. where yeah. Where but it she's was. she's alive still Thank and God. and cancer free. Wow. But it was just such an emotional moment going through that that I was uh -huh. like, I want to replicate that, and it's been great. And we're um, about eight nine episodes in, and we're like we're putting it out once a month. That's I, great. I do it with my friend Gia Jung, who's also a storyteller in the community and the storytelling community here. And it's been it's been awesome getting like reactions and talking to people about like 
all these different things. Like, I'm always figuring out new songs, new ways to listen to music, and just interact with it. I just wanted a different way to talk about music that wasn't just, like, reviewing music or critiquing music or talking about new music. Right. Know? Like yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Cause yeah. we have a, we have we know some uh, a storyteller named Dana Rossi who did um, the soundtrack series, right. but that that was from a totally different angle, and that was a show first before it became a podcast. Mm -hmm. So where does Wick and I like play it back? Cause it's like pay it back. So <laughs> is, is that on iTunes? It is on iTunes. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you can find podcasts. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. let me ask you this one this one last question before before we wrap it up and go home. Um, so did you have? Did, any difficulty or like hindrances or anything as as a black man from the south coming up to the north or an, anywhere in your career because like everything you've said has just been so smooth and easy peasy and I'm just wondering if like your whole life has been like that um, or if you've had to yeah. deal with shit. No, I've definitely had to deal with shit. I mean, I think part of the reason, and I didn't say this before, but part of the reason why I left NPR in the first place was that advancing was really tough. Oh. One, it's a big company, but two, it's a big company. I could tell that they were playing favorites. You think? Well, that's the way it felt. I don't want to definitely put NPR on the yeah, spot, yeah, but don't. it's as if they're gold, certain golden children. And I'm not to, not to say that they're all like they're, the, the golden children are all white or all male or all female, but I could definitely see people moving up for some reason. And I was trying really, really hard, like try, like working longer hours and it. You know, just to get things done, pitching really interesting ideas. But in terms of getting new opportunities, it felt really, really tough and really hard to get. And also, it was really tough to like see where I could go if nobody who looked like me or thought like me necessarily was getting into higher positions of management. I know? get it. And you know, sometimes, I mean, honestly, I I kind of think that more and more we just need to like make our own model, yeah. like like you were doing with, with Play It Back. Yeah. You know, or like what you guys did at NYC with There Goes the Neighbor. We have to tell our own stories and not. And it, I don't think it's right to say, well, they're not giving me the chance mm -hmm. because, like, they're not giving really anybody the chance. You, yeah. you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. In, in the long run, yeah. then, you know, we, we need to make our own chances and, like, make our own network so we can help each other the same way the previous model has. Yeah. I don't want to put, like, pejoratives on it, but, yeah. like, you know, and I don't want to be separate either but like you know if, if nobody's going to tell our stories we have to exactly and that's what we're doing right here tonight yes all definitely. right john if you have one thing to say to anyone who's listening to the show what would you tell them i would t about well, just anything like advice. anything stories advice being creative being an artist i would to, say to, to the little girl on the top floor tenement walk up in the bronx or to the little boy living in a trailer park <laughs> i would say stop thinking too much about what you want to do and just do it. Just do it. Just be punk. Do it. Just yes. do it. Pretend it's 1975 and be punk. Oh, my God. All right, John, thanks a lot. Thank you. And now, a word from a fellow Radio Free Brooklyner. Killer Killy! Join me, Killy Mockstar Dwyer, every other Friday night here on Radio Free Brooklyn from 8 to 10 p.m. for... Mockumental features indie, comedy, quirky, and novelty music and the musicians who create it. Whether you're chilling after a hard-ass week of work or you're pre-gaming for a Friday night rave, Mockumental is a party in your panties. Let's feel funny together. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua. Sometimes in your life, if you're lucky more than once, you'll meet some people, certain people, or you'll walk into a certain place. And when you meet this, these people or this person and you go into this place, it somehow feels more like home than your own family 
or home ever did. There's this song that I'm going to play now from Talking Heads, who often played in the place we're going to visit next about just that, going home, or something like it, from Stop Making Sense and Talking Heads from the live album in 1984.
now, Chapter 41 of Fish Out of Agua. Goodbye, 80s, or Escape from CBGB's, Part 2. Hear ye, hear ye, I yelled above the music at a rock club called the Continental Divide. Tonight is March 1st, 1990, and I will never go out with Adam Gold! And then I fell off the table I had been kind of straddling. I think I might have had five beers. I also vaguely remember hearing people cheer. In the little over two years since Pasha and I had broken up, I had the usual romantic experiences a woman in her late 20s should have. The fling, the transitional boyfriend, and the mistake. But in September of 1989, my friend Eddie's band was playing at CBGB's gallery, and he asked if I was going. When I said, of course I'm going, he said, good there was someone else going that he wanted me to meet. Eddie Melendez and I knew each other from Gimbel's on 86th Street, where we and my SVA friend Tanya all worked together in their art supply department. We had all become friends, but Eddie and I never became romantically involved. I was still going with Pasha when we met, and by the time we split, he was taken. But I maintain to this day that Eddie Melendez is the only Latin man I could ever have seen myself with. Eddie was a musician, a guitarist, and a great one. On certain club bathroom walls in the East Village in the late 1980s and early 1990s, you might have seen scrawled, Eddie Melendez is God. This was that Eddie. His latest band consisted of him on lead guitar, his brother Willie on drums, a gorgeous West Indian-looking man with waist-length dreadlocks on bass named Andre, and a gothic southern blonde with a voice of silk and steel named Plain Jane. They called themselves Laguna Moray, and why they did not become rock superstars is a total mystery to me. I absolutely think they should have been, and I want to think that they could have been. Bands that would later become famous, like the Spin Doctors, used to open for them. But this story is about Adam and me. It was over 10 years since I had been chased by rabid, ripped fishnet-wearing cross-dressers from CBGB's main club, and I had been back there more than a few times since. But the night I met Adam Gold, we were next door to CBGB's main club at the space called CBGB's Gallery. I remember I was wearing a brand new pair of ankle-zippered guest jeans and being my normal ladylike self, <clears throat> dancing on top of a stack of marshals with my girlfriend Tanya. Tanya and I went to every gig of Eddie's we could. We, along with a group of people who followed the band Laguna Marae, called ourselves Goonies. Our signature was that when the band played a song called Slash, we'd all rush in front of the stage and start dancing like crazy. And I do mean crazy. Really crazy. Like what kids today would call cray-cray. But on this night, Tanya and I were dancing on top of the amps. And then I heard Eddie say, hey, come down. And when we did, Eddie introduced us to Adam Gold. Adam was tall, with a slim, wiry build. He had a full head of thick, wavy, dark brown hair, a wide smile, and what looked like green eyes under a pair of wire-frame glasses. He also looked very, very, 
very young. Eddie finished his introductions, and the four of us hung out intermittently throughout the night. As I was leaving, Adam ran up to me and asked if he was going to see me again. Sure, I said. I'll see you at the next gig. I did, in fact, see Adam at the next Laguna Marais gig, and the next one, and the next one. And when I finally asked him his age, he told me he had just turned 21. I had just turned 29. And I told him that as far as dating was concerned, forget it. He was eight years younger than I was, and I wasn't interested in cradle robbing. The term cougar wouldn't be coined for another 15 years. Eddie had confessed to me at CBGB's gallery that Adam had been in a funk. Adam and Eddie worked together at the art department at Pearl Paint. And for the previous two weeks, Adam had done nothing but mope because he had just broken up with his girlfriend. Eddie had comped him for that gig that night, saying, oh, you're going to meet two hot single women. Yeah, Tanya and me. Thanks, Eddie. And when Adam saw the two of us dancing on top of the marshals, he told Eddie we were both hot and asked which one of us he should talk to. Eddie pointed to me, to me, and said, her, she's sweeter. Not that Tanya would have gone out with Adam either. <laughs> Tanya was 28, and in her words, I don't look at anyone under 35. Tanya liked men, not boys. I was in the market for a man myself. My last encounter, the transitional boyfriend who kind of turned into a mistake, had been someone three years younger than I was, and I had decided I wasn't ever going to look at anyone under 30. Why Eddie would think that either Tanya or I would be attracted to a guy so much younger than us was puzzling. But Eddie always liked older women. At 27, his girlfriend, Jeannie, was 34 years old. But that wasn't for me. I needed a mature man, not a googly-eyed, green-eyed boy who would hang around me at every gig, which is exactly what Adam did. But I liked Adam. I enjoyed talking to him. He was different from anyone I had ever known. And then one midwinter night as I was leaving a gig, Adam asked me for about the twentieth time when I was going to go out with him. I patted him on the cheek and said he was a nice boy and good night. And he grabbed my wrist and he said he was a man and that he had been around the world. Really? I said. Really? He said. He told me his father was an astrophysicist who had taught at universities around the world, and from the ages of 7 to 14, Adam had lived in England, France, Germany, Denmark, Japan, and India, with stops in Greece, Italy, and Egypt. I was floored. I had never even been out of the United States at this time. We sat and talked until the bar closed. But I still wouldn't go out with him. A couple of weeks after learning of Adam's worldly man status came my infamous, infamous announcement, okay, plunged to the floor, at the Continental Divide. But even after that, Adam and I continued to fall deeper into our non-relationship relationship. We would see each other a few times a month at gigs. He would ask me out. I would say no. But before the no, we'd have these hours-long conversations about music the primacy of art, Star Trek, and the 1970s graffiti days. 
I wasn't surprised that besides Laguna Moray, Adam listened to The Clash, UB40, and Black Sabbath. He wanted to be a famous painter and loved Star Trek, both the original series reruns and Next Generation. But what was crazy to me was that we had graffiti in common. When Adam told me that he used to hit the Zariga Avenue layups on the number six line, I asked him what year. When he told me from 1984 to 1986, I stared at him in disbelief. I told him that I had grown up on St. Peter's Avenue and used to stand at my bathroom window smoking and watching kids tag at those layups. And at the next gig, he brought in a photograph of himself on those same layups in front of a train. And he was sure that on one of those nights, I was looking at him. Slowly, it dawned on me that I had at last met my male equivalent. A New York City born and raised ex-graffiti writer and artist who was the black sheep of his academic family as I was the red sheep of mine. But I still wouldn't go out with him. He would write his phone number on a napkin and stick it in my coat pocket. I would rip it up right in front of him. He would do it more sneakily the next time. I would find it in my pocket a week afterwards and then rip it up right in front of him. And then, one night, we both went to a Goonie gig separately, with dates, and spent so much time talking to each other that our respective dates left together. But I still wouldn't go out with him. And then came the intervention. Tanya and I also hung out with a pair of sisters, Diana and Chloe, who had also both gone to the School of Visual Arts. They now live together on East 3rd Street with Diana's young son, and Tanya and I would meet up with them at their apartment every week to drink wine, munch on cheese, and watch Twin Peaks. On this week, I had caught a case of LPT and was a little late. And when I arrived, the television was on, but the sound was off, and there were seven women in the room all looking at me. It really was an intervention. Each one of them stood up and spoke her reason why she thought I should go out with Adam. They all knew the two of us. They had all seen the two of us at Laguna Marae gigs. We were the both craziest goonies out of all the crazy goonies. And they all thought that they knew better than I did. The top three reasons they gave, all Tanya's, were, and I quote, You don't have to fuck him, Michelle. You don't have to marry him. You just have to go out with him. For God's sake, you are the only two people I know who still listen to Black Sabbath. How bored can you be for three hours? Tanya was right. About the Black Sabbath, and as it turned out, about everything. And so, in November of 1990, I finally agreed to go out with Adam Gold. Our first official date was at a Goonie gig on Staten Island that nearly turned into a race riot worthy of Lehman High School in 1975 or 6. These Neanderthal, way outer outer borough rednecks hanging out at that bar could not grok that a punk rock gothic funk band could have spicks and niggers in it. And we basically, and our friends, and the band, barely got out of there with our lives or without the wrath of the police who thought we were the ones that caused the trouble when they unsuccessfully came in and started trying to break things up. 
On our second date, Adam and I went to Phoebe's on the Bowery. We ate blackjack burgers, played pool, and drank beer all night. And I went home in a cab alone. I don't remember what we did on our third date. But that's the night Adam came up that's the night Adam came home with me and never left. The red sheep and the black sheep would be together for nearly fourteen years. Those were clips from Dambala and, and um Slash from a nineteen ninety Laguna Moray cassette I hunted down, found, and had digitized just for this episode. Mad props and thank yous to fellow Radio Free Brooklyner Elan Danzinger of Lost and Reround for helping a sister out and keeping it in the family. And that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you've liked what you've heard today or in a past episode, please consider sponsoring us. There's a little green button at the bottom of the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com that says, Sponsor the Show. Just click on it and let Patreon take care of the rest. You can do it for as little as $1 per episode. (laughs) There are only seven episodes left after this one, kids. And that's the cost of a whole week's worth of kitten food. Or like 10 eggplants back in 1988. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with my favorite Laguna Marais song of all time in its entirety. Maybe you can't go home again, but thanks to friends and technology... You can hear your home skillet's music again from the Laguna Moray in 1990. Slash. Hi, Eddie, Willie, Andre, and Plain Jane. Hello. See you next week.
Let it go, 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 let it go.